Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to First uh, Peter chapter four. We're just about in the home stretch uh, here for First Peter, and we've been talking uh, over the last however many weeks, months it's been uh, about a lot of suffering and politics and persecution and things like that. And uh, and Peter's not going to let up on us today. Today we're going to be talking about. Uh, what we call the S word, suffering. We don't like to talk about suffering. We kind of consider that a, a dirty word um, that we like to avoid, right? And, and any any kind of good human being, like nobody wants to suffer. No, nobody says bring on the suffering. Uh, but Peter today is going to give us some encouragement in our suffering as Christians. And, and I want to just right out of the gate, when, when I say suffering in the context that we're going to talk about it today, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago, uh, Jordan uh, talked about kind of some different kinds of suffering. There's there's general suffering, like things like death and disease that are beyond our control. Uh, we, we can't do anything about it. it just We live in a, a fallen world and those things happen. Uh, people get cancer, th- things like that. Uh, but then the kind of suffering that Peter's going to talk about today is not that. Uh, Peter's talking more really about persecution. The, the, uh, the suffering that comes as a result of our faith in Christ. Um, and so keep that in mind as we talk about suffering, uh, as Peter calls it suffering, really uh, uh, we would call it more persecution. And I want to look at kind of five aspects from the text today uh, of uh, suffering or Christian suffering or persecution. And so those five aspects that we're going to look at today are the certainty of Christian suffering, the privilege of Christian suffering, the testimony of Christian suffering, the effect of Christian suffering, and the outcome of Christian suffering. So the certainty, the privilege, the testimony, the effect, and the outcome uh, of Christian suffering or persecution. So starting in verse 12, or uh, yeah, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, he starts off this section with a term of endearment. So he's talking to people that he cares about, uh, and he wants them to know. It's kind of like when you know your dad or your grandpa pulls you aside and says, "Son, we got to have a talk." Right? It's like like you know that whatever is coming, like it's important. It's something that that needs to be heard. And so Peter, starting out by calling his readers beloved, means pay special attention to what's about to come. And he says. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Jesus told us that those who follow him would suffer because he suffered. And I think this is one of the things that that we as Christians reject more than anything in the Bible. Maybe we don't outright reject it, but, but again, we avoid suffering. We avoid persecution at all costs. Right? Nobody wants to be that guy who is known for being the Christian weirdo that nobody likes. And so in our effort to not be that person, uh, the pendulum swings very far the other way. And, and, and you know, we want to be kind in the world. And of course we want to be kind in the world. We want to be known uh, as generous people and helping people and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but in our efforts to do that, we avoid at all costs anything that would bring on any sort of persecution for our faith. And again, Jesus tells us that because he suffered, that those who take on his name, who call themselves Christians, who are little Christs, don't be surprised that there is going to be suffering in this world for your faith. And as I was thinking about this, I got to thinking about just kind of our our current cultural moment, if you will. Um, How many Christians are so invested in the politics of our day? And I don't want to beat a drum that we've already kind of beat to death, but like we're willing to suffer for our political stances. We're willing to take some grief from the other side for our political stances, aren't we? 
Whatever side you're on, we're, we're willing to do that. And in our effort to do that, we, we think that a political victory involves fighting for our rights. And at the same time, we fail to realize that a kingdom victory involves laying aside our rights. Victory for politics requires that we fight for our freedoms and we fight for our liberties. And, and as we've said before, I'm, I'm thankful for the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And I'm thankful for people that fight for those things. But that's not the battle that the Bible calls the church to take on, necessarily. Yet, as Christians, we're so invested in political victory and fighting for our rights, we forget about the victory of the kingdom that says, lay down the rights that you've been given so that others could come to know Christ. And Peter's telling us, don't be surprised at the persecution or the suffering that comes simply by being named a Christian. He calls it a fiery trial. So this suffering that comes, whatever it is, this persecution that comes, whatever it is, it's not going to be pleasant. This is more than just your neighbor thinking that you might be a little off because of your faith. A fiery trial, we'll talk about in a moment, um, how Peter and some of the, the early followers of Christ, how they died. It wasn't pleasant. They, they died because of their faith. And so when Peter talks about these fiery trials, he's in the thick of the fiery trials as he's writing this. He says, don't be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you. We, we believe in the sovereignty of God, which is to say that God is in control of everything. There isn't anything that happens anywhere outside of God's watchful eye. And for the Christian, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, that if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, that everything that happens in your life is for your good. That's a little bit different than saying that everything is good. But the Bible says that everything that happens to the Christian is for your good. That God will work all things together for the good of those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so if that's true, if it's true that God is in control of everything, if it's true that whatever suffering comes into my life, whatever persecution comes into my life and yours, is under the watchful eye of God then it's also true that those things are for our good. And so these fiery trials that we would rather avoid, there would be a sense in which we might say that we need those things for the good of the church. And not only for the good of the church, but for the good of you and me and each of us individually. So this particularly difficult suffering of fiery trials, it would seem to be that it's necessary even a cursory read of the book of Acts, right? The beginning of the book of Acts, we're, we're told that, that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? And do you know how that happened? Suffering. Persecution. Persecution caused the church to spread. There was a moment, I think it was in Acts 15, if I remember right, where the apostles came back to report to the church to say, guess what? We started in Jerusalem, and you know where we went from there? We went to Judea. And you know what happened after that? Then the gospel went to Samaria, and you know what? It's going to the ends of the earth. What, what God said would happen actually happened, and it happened through persecution. It happened when, when the world put their thumb on the church, and it caused the gospel to spread throughout the world, almost as if this were God's plan of spreading the gospel throughout the world. Think about somebody who's willing to suffer for a cause. There's no more compelling story in the world than somebody who's willing to suffer, whatever their cause is. There's no more compelling story than someone who's willing to suffer 
for their cause, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, Peter is telling us that there is this certainty in suffering for the Christian, this certainty in persecution for the Christian, and to not be surprised by it. And what we can infer from that is if we're not to be surprised by it, then we ought not spend a lot of our energy trying to avoid it either, because it is a certainty, because it's coming. So don't be surprised at these fiery trials when they come upon you. And if you're like me, I'm an inquisitive person. I ask the why question a lot. And so I, so I read this and I think, well, why? Why is it necessary? Why, do we, why is it that we need to suffer? And Peter answers this for us in verse 12. He says to test us. We suffer in order to be tested. But think about this. For whose benefit is the test? Is God sitting on his throne thinking, hmm, I need to test these people to see if they pass or if they fail? It's not for God's benefit because God knows. It's kind of like in the Bible when God asks questions. He asks questions not because he doesn't know the answer. right? Back, back up to Genesis when Adam and Eve, when they did the thing that God told them not to do and they went and hid from God and God says, comes down into the garden and he calls out and he says, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where they were. This is God being gracious and God being kind to his children that just blew it. Right? The question was not for God's benefit, but for theirs. Just like these fiery trials that come upon us to test us, they're not for God's benefit. God's not waiting in anticipation on his throne thinking, man, I hope they pass, I hope they pass. These tests are for our benefit. Something I've been thinking about in my own life over the last year is that um, so many aspects of our faith can be theoretical until they're tested. Right? We come to church every Sunday and we, we hear preaching and we go to Bible studies throughout the week and, and we're learning and we're constantly digesting these things from the word that, that intellectually we know, but until our faith is tested, it, it's, it really is just theoretical. And so when these fiery trials come into our life, this persecution because of our faith, we come out the other side of it knowing that maybe there's some substance to our faith because I made it through this fiery trial. Even in the midst of the trial to say, you know what, there's some substance to my faith, there's something to this. And really the substance isn't my faith, the substance is the object of our faith. More so than it is faith that we produce in and of ourselves. And so there's a sense in which we ought to be thankful for the test. Again, again, we avoid these kinds of things, but we ought to be thankful for the test because God graciously allows us to be tested so that we can benefit from that test, knowing that there's something to our faith, knowing that our faith is being uh, grown through these kinds of things. Think about this. If things were always easy, if the easy button were an actual thing, and we could just push it any time that we want, how would there ever be any substance to our faith if, if it wasn't at times hard? How would we have any substance to our faith if there was no test for us to point back to and say, you know what, this proves to me that my faith is real and authentic? There's no easy button in the Christian life. And then Peter, again, reminds us that don't, don't think this to be a strange thing. In other words, this is a normal part of the Christian life. That if we're not being persecuted for our faith, then there might be some disconnect in how we're living out our faith. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is some very definitive language. Not, not some or not most who desire to live a godly life, but all. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
not may be, not will likely be, but will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter is telling us, come to terms with this. And I think for many of us, we, we just don't have a theology of persecution or suffering. We don't have it. And what Peter's trying to do for us today is to establish a theology behind suffering for our faith. So that's the certainty of suffering. In verses 13 to 15, we see the privilege of Christian suffering. Peter says, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And and so again, I ask the why question here. He says rejoice. Why would we rejoice in suffering? Maybe we can tolerate suffering. But Peter goes as far as to say rejoice in it, to be glad when you're persecuted for your faith. To rejoice in it. And what is it that we rejoice in? He says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This Christian life that we live is us becoming more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ from this point to the time that we see him face to face, right? We become more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ. And as we become more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ, our life looks more and more like the life of Christ looked. And as you read through the gospel accounts, you see that that Jesus suffered. He was persecuted for his faith. And those that followed him, the apostle Paul, Paul was persecuted for his faith far more than probably you and I ever will be. Have you ever thought about this? If you're Paul's friend, if you were living in his days and you were Paul's friend, what, what advice would you give the apostle Paul? I've thought about this a lot. And the conclusion I've come to is the advice that I would give the Apostle Paul is like, tone it down, dude. When you go into a town, you don't need to go to the public square and just stir the pot by talking about Christ. Like maybe talk to somebody in an alley or go to somebody's house or over coffee. Right? You don't have to just go stir it up to where they run you out of town wanting to kill you. But this is what Paul did. He invited this persecution. He could have stopped it or at least lessened it. Anytime he wanted to, if he would have just toned it down. But he didn't tone it down. Because he rejoiced in so far as that he shared in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says things like, I I count my life as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He says, whatever was to my gain, I counted as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't tell me to tone it down. I'm not going to tone it down. I've got, I've got a message that I've got to get out there. And I know that it's going to cause my life to be difficult, but I'm going to do it anyway. This was, this was the Apostle Paul. Peter says that we would rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The Apostle Paul, he was somebody in the world before he came to know Christ. He was revered. He was respected. He had quite an impressive pedigree, very educated well-known in his day. And if you don't know his story, he was a persecutor of the church and God saved him and then he became persecuted for the church in order that others might come to know Christ as well. And Paul wasn't about his glory. He wasn't out there trying to make a name for himself. Everything about his life pointed to Christ, including his suffering and his persecution. 
And whether you agree with this guy or not, or Peter or any of the other early disciples, you look at them and you have to say, like, there's, there, there's something to their message that they're willing to suffer for it. There's got to be something to it. It's a compelling message when someone's willing to suffer for a cause. And so Peter tells us to rejoice insofar that we're able to share in Christ's sufferings and that we may rejoice and be glad when it's his glory that's revealed, not our glory that's revealed. It says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Who is it that the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon? The Christian. Right? Jesus said he had to go so that he could send us the helper, capital H helper, the Holy Spirit. Right? And so that spirit only rests upon those that know Christ. And so as we're insulted, as we're willing to suffer and bring persecution into our lives for our faith, that, that's another part of the test. Like That's an indicator that maybe there's something to your faith. Maybe there's some substance there when we're willing to say, yes, bring on the suffering, bring on the persecution. We oftentimes look at suffering as saying that maybe God isn't with us if we have to suffer, if we have to go through difficulties. We ask the question, God, where are you in this hardship? Where are you in my suffering? Where are you in my persecution? But if what Peter's saying is true here, what he's saying is that the fact that we suffer, that we're persecuted for our faith is an indication that Christ is with us. It's not that he's abandoned us. And so we're asking in those moments the wrong question. What kind of suffering did Jesus' disciples endure? I don't know if you ever looked into kind of church history to see what, what this, uh, Jesus' disciples did. But Peter and Paul, uh, they were both martyred in Rome around uh, 66 AD during the persecution under Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down, and he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't deem himself worthy to die like Christ did. Thomas, do you remember doubting Thomas? The guy that says, I got to see the holes in his body for myself before I believe. Tradition tells us that Doubting Thomas preached as far east as India. And he he founded a sect of Christianity, according to tradition, in India. But they claim that he died when he was pierced with spears of four different soldiers because he wouldn't stop preaching, he wouldn't tone it down. Philip. Philip had a powerful ministry in North Africa and then later on in Asia Minor. He converted the wife of a Roman proconsul, and in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and had him beat to death. Matthew, do you remember Matthew, the tax collector and the writer of the Gospel of Matthew? He ministered in Persia and Ethiopia, and some of the oldest reports say that he was martyred, while others say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Either way, an untimely and unpleasant death because of his faith. Bartholomew, tradition says that he went to India with Thomas, and then he went to Armenia, to Ethiopia, southern Arabia. The guy got around. There are various accounts of how he met his death, and no one's sure exactly what's true, except that he was martyred for his faith. He was killed because he wouldn't tone it down either. James, the son of Alphaeus, he ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned, And that didn't kill him. And in the Bible, when they say stone, it's not what you're thinking. They threw rocks at you to kill you. He was stoned, and that didn't kill him. And so then they clubbed him to death when that didn't work. 
Simon the Zealot, remember Simon? He ministered in Persia and he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to a false god. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas. Tradition tells us that he was in Syria with Andrew uh, and he was burnt to death. What a terrible way to die. And all because these guys wouldn't tone it down. John, the only one of the apostles generally thought to have died a natural death, he, he was in exile. And they tried to kill him by burning him alive in a vat of oil. And as horrible of a way as that is to die, it's a much more horrible way to not die. He, he survived it. And he lived out his life and, and died, according to, to most traditions, um, a natural death. But, but he was persecuted for his faith as well because he wouldn't tone it down. Don't be surprised at these fiery trials when they come upon you to test you and rejoice in them. These people all looked at suffering as being persecuted for the cause of Christ as a privilege. Not not just something that we tolerate, not just something that we would consider a means to an end, but a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. This is what Peter's telling us to rejoice in. In verse 15, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Those are just reasons to suffer like you earn that. Right? If you're one of those things, or you know, the list could go on. Don't, don't rejoice in suffering that you have coming to you. I think of a guy that I uh, know from years ago when I was in high school. This, this guy that I knew uh, radically came to faith, lived a hard life. Hard life against God, and, and uh, I don't know the full story of how he came to faith, but I just remember that this guy came to faith, and he was just kind of known as just being a hard guy. And, and his life turned on a dime, and he became very zealous for God when, when he came to faith, and he was a truck driver. And one of the things that he would do when he would drive his truck long haul is he would just tie up the CB radio and just he'd read the Bible. <laughs> right? Nobody liked this guy. <laughs> He would stand out in front of a store in the, in the town I grew up in, and he would block the door with his sandwich board and bullhorn, just screaming at people, turn or burn. Nobody like He was a jerk. And he, he got arrested multiple times for those kinds of things. He deserved that suffering. That was not suffering for the cause of Christ. That was suffering because he was a jerk. I appreciate his zealousness and his zeal, but he earned that suffering. Peter's not, he said, like, don't rejoice in that kind of suffering. Rejoice in the kind of suffering that, that when you love people enough that you're willing to share Christ with them and they reject you for it. Rejoice in that kind of suffering. One of my favorite movies is the movie Braveheart. I, lo- I love Brave. I love a good story. Like I said earlier, there's nothing more compelling than someone who's willing to suffer for a cause. And Braveheart is a story of this guy named William Wallace. He's a Scot. Scottish accents are so cool. You can say anything in a Scottish accent and I'm hooked. He's fighting for the liberation from the tyranny of the English government. I'm trying to spoil this in case you haven't seen it, but uh, it's just a really compelling story. And, and there comes a point in the movie where where his wife is killed, and then like it's on. Once his wife is killed, he's taken on the English basically by himself, uh, trying to round up a few few people to help him, and he suffers for his cause, and he's martyred eventually because of persecution that he suffers because of his cause that he's fighting for. And he ultimately doesn't see his cause come to fruition. He doesn't see the liberation of the, of the Scots from, from the English. But he dies in service to this cause. 
And it's a compelling story. And think about every movie that you've ever watched except romantic comedies. And it's basically there's stories about people willing to suffer for a cause. Maybe even some rom-coms are that too. But that's why we, every story that, that we're compelled by is somebody suffering for some sort of a cause. And the reason that compels us is because it points us to the greatest story ever. It points us to the story of Christ who suffered for a cause, who suffered so that you and I would come to know him. He underwent persecution so that you and I would come to know him. Now, suffering isn't completely foreign to us. Many, many of us suffer things that we don't like as a means to an end. Many of us have worked jobs that we hate because they, they pay enough for us to live the lifestyle that we want to live. Or we work a job that, that will provide for our retirement in the future. We, we don't like it, and, and we, we look at this light at the end of the tunnel that eventually I'm going to be able to retire and not do this, right? And, and we put up with horrible bosses. We put up with horrible coworkers. We put up with doing work that we don't like. We put up with alarm clocks and getting up at times that we don't want to get up and doing things that we don't want to do as a means to an end. So the question for us doesn't, doesn't become, are, are we familiar with, with this idea of suffering or persecution? The question is, what are we willing to be persecuted for? Are we willing to be persecuted for the cause of Christ? Are we willing to live such lives that we stand out in the world in such a way that people look at us and say mean things about us or, or cause difficulty in our lives that maybe would go away if we just toned it down a bit? Are we willing to do that? And Peter makes a distinction. There's a, there's a suffering that, in a sense, it, like it's unjust that we would suffer as Christians, but we do it anyway because our Savior suffered. But when you suffer for being a jerk, you've earned that. That's just. Nobody looks at that and says, poor you. That, that's just suffering that you have earned. As followers of Christ, there's a sense in which we would say that we don't deserve to suffer, except that we're told that it's part of the deal. We don't deserve to suffer because we love people enough to share Christ with them. That's unjust suffering. But Jesus suffered unjustly. Jesus was the perfect God-man who never sinned and perfectly obeyed the will of his Father and loved people perfectly in ways that you and I can never do. And he suffered unjustly and he died an unjust death. But it wasn't for nothing. It was so that you and I could come to know him. And so as we are being conformed more and more to his image and to his likeness, it makes sense that we would suffer persecution that we don't necessarily deserve in the same manner that our Savior did and for the same reason so that we could bring others to know the love of God. So that's the privilege of suffering. Then we have the testimony of Christian suffering in verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He doesn't say when you suffer. He doesn't say should you suffer. But he says when you suffer as a Christian, or if you suffer as if, this is again reminding us of the certainty of suffering as a Christian. What Peter's talking about, again, is not just general suffering like things like disease and death, but being persecuted because of our faith and because, like the Apostle Paul, like the early disciples, we're not willing to tone it down. He says, when that time comes for you to suffer, when the time comes for you to be persecuted, don't be ashamed of it. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. Don't be ashamed of it. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us to not be ashamed of the gospel. 
Do you know why he tells us to not be ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. This weird message that we have that's not real popular in the world is the power of God unto salvation. The fact that we're willing to suffer for a cause is part of the power of God unto salvation. And part of the reason that when we see it work, we can rejoice in it. But Peter says, to glorify God in that name. And what name is he talking about? He's talking about the name Christian. To glorify God in that, you and I can sit here today, and if we've put our faith in Christ, that we can take on the name Christian. To glorify in that name, because there's a whole lot of meaning that comes with that name Christian. Right? Some of you are, your, your names, you're named after family members, and there's a meaning to your name. Right? Maybe you're the third or fourth one to be that name in your family, and there's, there's a, a legacy that goes with that name. But there's a legacy that goes with being named Christian. And it's that Christ suffered and died so that you and I could come to know him. And Peter says to glorify God in that name. That those who bear God's image, that we would glorify him. And one of the ways that we do that is that we live as much as we can like Christ lived. Not being afraid of suffering and persecution. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this kind of long list of, of people who, who lived for God. This was before the time of Christ, talking about Old Testament saints, people like Moses and Noah and David, names that we might know, who did these great things in the name of the Lord. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, we're given this other list of people, and we don't know their names, but it says of them that some of them, Some of these unnamed people, they were tortured. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Who wants to be with that group? None of us. But the writer of Hebrews says, of these people, he says, the world was not worthy of them. These people whose names we don't even know, the world was not even worthy of them. He goes on to say that they wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This group of unnamed people, kind of like the William Wallace story, they didn't get to see their cause finish out. They didn't get to see it come to fruition. But, but they engaged in their cause knowing that something better was coming down the road, looking beyond even this life and the here and the now. And what Peter's doing is he's calling the Christian to live with, with eternity in view. That, that we, we know how this thing ends, right? The Bible tells us how this thing ends. So we know. And we have confidence and we have faith of how this thing is going to end. And Peter's saying, look, look that way. Look that direction. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God that you can be called Christian and live as a Christian on this earth. In that, you're willing to take on suffering and persecution so that other people could come to know Christ. Again, there's nothing more compelling than someone who suffers for their cause. And so if we want the gospel to be compelling, our suffering is compelling to a watching world than the effect of Christian suffering in verses 17 and 18. 
For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter's talking about suffering, persecution for our faith. Uh, and then he takes what, what seems like maybe a little bit of a left turn here when he starts talking about judgment. Judgment beginning with the household of God. What he's referring to here is not, not judgment in the sense that the hammer is going to drop. It's not that, that kind of a judgment. What he's referring to here is purification. Purification begins with the house of God. And then he asks this question, so if, if judgment or if purification begins with the Christian, then what is the outcome for those who don't obey? What's the outcome for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever? And here's the thing about suffering. Suffering or, or persecution, as we've been talking about, has this way of revealing genuine faith versus a false faith. Right? If, your faith if, you're, if your faith is false, you're not going to suffer for your cause if there's, if there's not substance to your faith. But if your faith is real, it's that faith that's going to carry you through being persecuted for your cause. And so this purification, really, it's, it's an authentication of faith that Peter's talking about. And so it has this way of kind of separating those who are the real deal from those who aren't the real deal. And that, that begins with the household of God, with the Christian. And Peter's giving a, a little bit of a warning here, really to everybody, to the Christian and the non-Christian. But for the non-Christian, he's like, if, if the Christians, if, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what does that mean for those who, who don't identify with Christ? Warning. There's a warning light going off here about this. Pay attention to this. Salvation comes with hardship. Again, Peter's trying to help us establish a theology of suffering here, a theology of persecution. It's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. And if our faith is not challenging in some way as it relates to persecution, there's a disconnect. But here's the good news. The Bible tells us that it's in our weakness that God's power is what? It's made perfect. In our weakness, God's power is made perfect. And so, by God's design, he works in our suffering. God reveals himself to us in our suffering. Not exclusively, but, but, but in our suffering, we see God in ways that we don't in the absence of suffering. If we never face difficulty, we, we might have to ask the question, where is the power of God at work in our life? As much as we avoid difficulty, that, that's, that's when God shows up. Or when we most recognize him anyway. God's ever present, but, but we recognize him most fully in our difficulties. And so going back to this idea that if our faith isn't tested, how do we know that it's genuine? Well, thank God that, that our faith is tested and that we can have some sense that it is genuine. It's through suffering that we identify with the Savior who suffered for us. And it's in difficulty when God most often reveals his power to us. What, what do we do with that if that's true? Think about that just for a moment. What do you do with that if that's true? If it's true that we identify with Christ when we are persecuted, and if it's true that, it, that in difficulty God reveals his power, what do you do with that? Does that change the way that you think about suffering? Does that change the way that you think about persecution? I hope it does. 
And so the effect of Christian suffering is that, that it brings a purification into our life that, that helps to authenticate our faith and helps us to know who's the real deal and who's not the real deal. Lastly, the outcome of Christian suffering in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he starts off verse 19 with therefore. In other words, in light of all that we've just said, in light of that, he says, let the one who suffers according to God's will entrust their souls. Suffering and according to God's will are in the same sentence. Did you catch that? Suffering and according to God's will are in the same sentence, which tells us that our suffering is ordered by God. Our persecution is ordered by God himself. Does that compute? Or are you like me that just, you know, like mind blown? How how can those two things be together? God orders the persecution of the Christian. There's, there's your theology of suffering right there. Your suffering is under God's watchful eye, and as we've talked about, it's not for nothing. There's a purpose to it. It's like there was a purpose to Christ's suffering. There's a purpose to those who follow Christ in their suffering. And so if it's true that your suffering and my suffering is according to God's will, then the response to that, Peter tells us, is to entrust our souls to the faithful creator, the one who won't let us down. And trust our souls to the Creator who watches everything, who sees everything, who knows everything, who is everywhere all of the time. Entrust yourself to Him. Look to something better, right? We have light at the end of our tunnel. And the light that we have at the end of our tunnel is that we're going to be face to face with our faithful Creator one day. That's the light we have at the end of the tunnel. Trust that. Look to something better as we're persecuted for our faith in the here and the now. Because our loving creator, just like he saved me and just like he saved you, he desires to save those who have yet to know him. And one of the ways that people come to know him is through the persecution of those that do know him. That compels the world to say, what's what's that story about? And we don't do that begrudgingly. The last words there, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. So doing what we can in the world to help people, to be kind to people, to be gracious to people, to love people. That we would do it while doing good. As I mentioned in my example earlier, like there, there are some people out there in the name of the Christian faith that are real jerks. In the history of evangelism, I don't think that anyone, any single person has ever come to Christ as a result of losing an argument or being proved wrong. People just don't come to Christ that way. Yet we spend a lot of our energy trying to win arguments and prove people wrong, don't we? That's not doing good in the world. I'm not saying there aren't times when you know the faith needs to be defended or whatever, but that's not doing good in the world is proving to people how wrong they are and how evil they are. The Bible tells us that, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And if it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance, then maybe my kindness and your kindness ought to play a part of that scenario as well. And so we, we endure persecution, trusting our faithful creator 
while we're doing good. And that doesn't mean that we don't address sin in the world. It doesn't mean that we don't call things. It doesn't mean that at all. I'm not saying that we just have to be a bunch of softies. and think, It's not saying that at all. But that we would be known more so for being kind people than real jerks. That's what it means. Should we willingly invite persecution into our life? If your answer is no, go back and watch the live stream again until your answer is yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. If, if, if your answer is yes, if you're compelled by God's word to, to realize that, that, that we need to develop and have a theology of suffering and that we need to maybe be willing to take on some more persecution than what we've been willing to take on, what does that mean? What does that mean? Maybe instead of, you know, like we would tell Paul to tone it down, maybe, maybe we can tone it up, right? Maybe we can do what we can to engage in our faith in public more than what we are doing now. The outcome of genuine Christian faith is marked by suffering servants emulating their suffering Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Doing good in the midst of suffering is a sign that God's power is being made perfect in our weakness and an indication that our faith is something, uh, is in something or in someone rather uh, better than the here and the now and that we're looking beyond this life and into eternity. And so as Christians who have an eternal perspective, suffering shouldn't surprise us. Suffering shouldn't deter us. We should be willing to bring it into our lives so that others can come to know Christ. And so I would challenge you just to consider your own theology of suffering or lack thereof, um, which probably is the case for most of us, and that we would willingly step into circumstances and situations where we know that we're going to be persecuted for our faith. Not because we're gluttons, but because we care about people enough and we love Christ enough to know that this is one of the ways that people come to faith in Christ. This is what Peter is telling us about today. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us and that you care for us. Thankful that you suffered on our behalf. Thankful that you suffered, uh, first and foremost, in our place, that you suffered for sin in the way that we deserve to suffer for our sin. But also thankful that that suffering is the thing that has allowed us to come to know you you did for us the things that we could and wouldn't do for ourselves so that we would come to know you. And so, Father, for those of us that are here today who are of the Christian faith, who take on the name Christian, help us as we emulate our Savior to undergo persecution in this world so that others could come to know you, so that we would have a testimony in our suffering of who you are and what you've done for us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.